0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. This episode contains descriptions of sexual abuse against minors and may not be appropriate for everyone. Please use discretion.
1: You know, the the boy choir school was at this mansion at the end of this long winding road. And you got to that road through these very windy back uh, roads in New Jersey, and then the driveway opened up to this huge oval, and at the end of the oval was this incredible mansion, and I remember pulling in and parking with everybody else that was moving in and thinking this was such an extraordinary place, and I had won a lottery ticket, uh, you know, kind of a... Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory-like moment, and uh, and I was incredibly excited to be there.
0: Lawrence Lessig is a law professor at Harvard and one of America's most famous lawyers. He's been called the Elvis of internet law, but lately he's been focused on the influence of money on Congress. He was briefly a candidate for the Democratic Party's nomination for president in 2016. Before he was the name he is today, he was a kid in Rapid City, South Dakota, where he was born and where his father built silos for Minutemen missiles. They eventually relocated to the small town of Williamsport, Pennsylvania. As a kid, he loved to sing. And when Lawrence Lessig was in the fourth grade, his church choir director suggested he go to a summer camp in Princeton, New Jersey, at an elite boarding school called the American Boy Choir School. He was so good that the school invited him to stay and join their official choir, meaning he'd be away from home for most of the year. Your father didn't want you to go.
1: No, he uh, was very strongly opposed. Um, and uh, it was kind of a Billy Elliot moment where I had to plead with him that this was my you know, chance to, to see the world, because what was so attractive was the idea of touring um, around the world with a boy choir, and that the education was so great and this was such an opportunity, and I just remember him melting and yielding and really hating the fact that he did that. He enrolled as a sixth
0: grader at this incredibly prestigious school that had been around since 1937. Students performed for presidents and for the Pope. Lawrence Lessig remembers performing at Carnegie Hall and traveling the world
1: meeting extraordinary musicians, um, and having a real sense of excellence. You know, we worked incredibly hard, and we were incredibly good. And all of that was completely other than the world that I was living in in small-town Pennsylvania. You know, one of the weird things that was true about the place, which is astonishing as a parent to think back about it, but was that we uh, we climbed the building all the time. You know, this is a three-story very old mansion, so, you know, probably it was 40 or 50 feet at least to the top of the roof. But we would take ropes and, and wrap them around chimneys and repel up the side of the building and all the way up the roof. And, um, and people also perfected the ability to kind of climb brick, so you would just Spider-Man-like learn how to grab the right crevices on the brick to climb. And, and a friend of mine climbed the brick wall next to the director's apartment uh, one Saturday morning and got to the ledge and looked in and saw the director sleeping in a in bed and next to him was a, another student um, and um, he told me that and I didn't I didn't quite believe it who was this director Donald Hansen so Hansen was a musician from Canada he had come down probably four years before, maybe three. Uh, And he was, you know, he was very young. He was in his early 30s at the time. He was an incredible pianist, an incredible musician, and incredibly beautiful. I mean, he was a striking, powerful um, person who, he didn't seem abnormal at all uh, to anybody, and certainly not to my parents or anybody around who looked at him. Everybody's looked at him as this incredible genius uh, musician, And, uh, and he was literally, quite literally, saving the school at the time.
0: The school was losing money, and Donald Hansen was operating as both the headmaster and director, pushing the board to raise the money the school needed to survive. So, this man, the school's savior, seemed to have free reign to operate however he liked. What happened to Lawrence Lessig during his time at the American Boy Choir School stayed hidden for many, many years, until he realized he was in the perfect position to do something about it. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal.
1: The whole place became incredibly crazy. There were regular parties on Friday nights and Saturday nights. Uh, you know, kids were, would be drinking. Um, I remember this drink called the Grasshopper, which I think was vodka and some weird mix. Um, and, you know, it was completely out of control. And uh, there was a regular movie night where we would all sit in um, Hanson's room. Watching a relatively small television screen, but it was the biggest one in the building, and watch a movie. And um, some of us would sit on the ca- some would sit on the couch next to Hanson, and there would be a blanket. And the movie was run silent, run deep, and um, he was uh, as silently as he could, reaching inside of um, my pants and uh, sexually. Um, uh, abusing me at that time and i was you know kind of stunned i remember just i don't even remember the movie i just remember sitting there and just wondering what was going on and and did anybody see what was going on and uh understand what was happening and that was the very beginning of um the next three years how old were you at that point i guess that must have been i was 12 um You know, there was a period of time after that where he would be very familiar and playful and uh, signaling his uh, strong affection. But from that point, this is like I think around December when this happens, until my birthday the following June, um, I don't think there's any other encounter. Um, And then we went away on tour to uh, California and he became increasingly focused again and when we came back it was just it was on my birthday or the day after my birthday or something like that and he he said okay I have to give you your present and he invited me up into his room and um, and it was this weird mix of um, um, I don't know how to describe it I mean he he was saying to me, I mean, he said to me, I, you know, you're an ugly boy, and I'm the only one who's going to want you. Uh, and so he was setting it up as if, you know, this is a great gift to me. And, and I, you know, quite frankly, it felt like a great gift. It was, you know, I, I was happy to accept the characterization of myself as an ugly boy. That's just the insecurity of that age. And, and I was certainly experiencing the attention as powerful gift uh, despite my ugliness. Um, and that began a much more regular relationship or, experience, you know, series of experiences. And, but over the time, this, this uh, relationship, uh, this, you know, our connection changed. And in my final year... This is a three story mansion, and he moved his apartment from where it had been um, originally, which is the place that my friend climbed up the window to see it, to the third floor. Um, and the third floor at the time had a very large apartment that had been used as a rehearsal room, and then it had two bedrooms down the hall. Uh, and I was in one of those bedrooms, and he moved up to the large apartment, and then he he had a wall built that separated the bedroom and the large apartment from the rest of the third floor, and so I was behind the wall, so so essentially, I was living in his apartment, And the, and the framing to everybody was, well, this is eventually going to be all my space, and so when you leave next year, then I'll just move in here, too, but the reality was I was, you know... F- 14 or 14 or 15, um, and I was living with the director, we had a key to our apartment. And, um, and that was, you know, during that year, I was, you know, regularly sleeping with him, um, you know, in much the way a couple does. You know, it's not like we had sex all the time, and it's not like that was the central part of our um, existence, but it was where I lived. And one night I came in to find him choking on his own vomit because he'd gotten so drunk that he just couldn't move. And I had to flip him over to um, stop him from choking to death. Um, uh, but that, uh, in that context, there was no way that others in the school didn't realize what was going on, in particular teachers. I mean, there was a classroom on that floor. And so... You know, five days a week, the science teacher would walk up the stairs and look at a door behind which he knew one of the only ninth graders was living with the director. Um, you know, and and the striking character of the uh, context was, you know, that, uh, you know, everybody knew he was sleeping with everybody all the time. And it was just, you know, when was your turn? Um and it, it was, it's just impossible to even imagine, but it was not something that I, at least I experienced with jealousy or anything. It was, you know, we were, we were the club. We were the, you know, we, we were the people on the inside. And, um, you know, it's an astonishing number of people. It could have been a third of the school um, at any particular time that, that had some sexual contact um, in some form. Um, You know, it's a small school, you know, there are certain certain times there's 30, sometimes there's 50, uh, depending on the year, but still a large number of people he's having some kind of connection with.
0: You you also, as you say, just had a a friendship with him. Uh, You obviously talked about life and things. What kind of things would you speak about? What kind of conversations would you have?
1: We certainly talked about managing the school a lot because I was the like the head boy the last year, and you know so we would work out how we would discipline or how we would make sure that the kids were doing what the kids needed to do and what did the kids need to do, and how did we how do we do that so in that sense, we were working together. Um, there were a couple times when we had a conversation about what was going on and You know, and I would raise skeptical questions about it. Um, And these were questions always prompted whenever I went away. You know, like I went home for Thanksgiving or I went home for Christmas. And, you know, I, I would leave that world and immediately I would feel, you know, deep anxiety about what was going on in that place. Why were we doing that? That didn't seem, I mean, that wasn't, I knew that wasn't what normal people did. Why, why did we do it? And I remember one time we were walking... He had a Jaguar parked in a garage just off of the campus, and we were walking to the Jaguar to go someplace. He was going to take me to the shop or something. And, and I said... I was saying to him, so, why, why is this... Why do you do this? Why does this make... Why, why is this good? And, and he gave me this very passionate argument about how every musical... Every great musical organization has this at its core. If you don't have this kind of passion, sexual connection to the, between the leaders and the performers, they just never have – they never perform at the level that they otherwise could. And so this was kind of part of what the deal was. Um, and yeah, you know, I don't remember feeling like I believed it completely, but I didn't have a place to stand really to, to know – whether it was wrong or how, what to do if I thought it was wrong. And, you know, I felt, you know, I mean, it was like a collaborator inside of this system that seemed clearly to be wrong. What happened next? So I graduated in ninth grade and went home. And when I got home, it was a very, it was a difficult transition home, um, when I got home, Hanson reached out to me and invited me to come with him to Canada. To his, his family had a camp up there and wanted to you know, wanted to spend some time at the camp, the kind of final goodbye. And so I asked my parents if I could go with him, and my mother, for the first time, signaled that she was unsure about the relationship and, and wondered about the relationship. And, and, and I got furious and I ran out of the house Nonetheless, she let me go, and I went, and I had this final week there, and, um, and then I went back and spent the rest of the summer really just struggling about what was going on.
0: That fall, he started 10th grade back in his hometown, Williamsport. He didn't tell his parents anything. The chairman of the American Boy Choir School board asked Lawrence Lessig to be the alumni representative on the board, and he agreed, which meant he saw Donald Hansen again.
1: Hansen had, at that time, had a relationship with another boy who had graduated, and I said to him, I thought that should be it, that this, that he should not, that I thought it was wrong for him to have these kinds of relationships, and he should not have them anymore, and he had this. Love affair with his boy who left, and that you know that that should be the end of this cycle of his life. And he was so committed, so agree. It was almost like he was. It was almost like he was liberated. Like finally, somebody was telling him no, and he could he could agree. Um, and we talked about you know I'm on the board, and if I know if I if I You've got to promise me this isn't going to happen because I I have an obligation. And
0: you were just a you were just a teenager, though, confronting him.
1: Yeah, I mean, I wasn't. There was nothing dangerous about the confrontation. I didn't feel, but I.
0: But just that, just that, I was just thinking about myself as a as a teenager confronting one of my teachers and having the courage to say, "Hey, what you're doing is wrong." That must have taken courage.
1: Maybe did not remember it as a courageous act I remembered it as a as a hurtful it was hurtful, but I felt like I had to maybe it was jealousy I don't know what i you know who knows what it was completely but but from that moment on, I had this you know I would go down regularly for board meetings I'd see him we had we you know there's no time at which we had any further sexual connection um, and he would continue to affirm that this, you know, I would say, how are things going? He said, things are great. No problems, no issues, no complications. And, and then, you know, a couple of years later, um, there was an emergency board meeting called because he had been caught um, uh, with some kid or some mother of some kid had told the school that he had abused her son. And, you know, we came down for the emergency board meeting and I went to his room and I said, what the fuck? You know, you promised me. And he said, I know, I just couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. And I felt so stupid. I felt so, you know, because I was so convinced I had saved the world. Like I had taking this board position, I'd leveraged the power to do good by keeping him the essential part to make the school succeed while at the same time protecting those kids. I was such a genius, and I was, turned out to be such a fool. And these children, I don't know how many children, turned out to uh, uh, have, you know, been so harmed, so damaged by by him continuing to be who he was.
0: By this point, Lawrence Lessig was in college at the University of Pennsylvania. After graduation, he went on to study philosophy in England. Donald Hansen had left the American Boy Choir School, and no one was quite sure where he'd gone.
1: And once he reached out to me and he came to visit in Cambridge, England, and uh, my girlfriend at the time and I, she knew the whole story, um, met him and we went for a punt down the cam. <laughs> it was a completely surreal experience of...
0: What did your girlfriend? Well, it does sound surreal. What did your, did your girlfriend look at you and say, why are we,
1: why are we hanging out with this guy? It, it, it partly, I think she partly was just you know, she wanted to understand it. and so here we were together, and we were gonna see the abuser. and you know again, he was a he was a completely compelling and loving character. So it was, you know, the afternoon, you know, standing back from it or above it. It's surreal, but the actual experience of the afternoon was perfectly normal. And I remember if we had dinner or whatever, we all had the afternoon and then said goodbye. And that was the last time I saw him. So that probably was, you know, 1984 or 1985.
0: You, You told your girlfriend. Did you tell anyone else about what had happened
1: to you? Well, the first person I told was a girlfriend I had at college. Um... And that was a really emotional experience because explaining it to her completely tore me up. Uh, and then um, the second person I told was my girlfriend at Cambridge. And it was so striking. I saw her, she's now a professor at Texas, and I saw her in um, the fall of 2015. And she, um, she had some photo albums from the time we were together and she pulled them out as she was preparing dinner and I started flipping through them and there was a person in the pictures I didn't recognize and I took the book over to her and I pointed to this person and then it hit me <laughs> that that was me and uh, I had never seen myself for who I was, because I had this conception of who I was defined by that man who had called me this ugly boy. And all through that time, I had experienced my self-conception as this ugly person who was so grateful for the love and attention of anybody. And I was sitting in their kitchen thinking, ah, my whole, so much of my life had been had been set up by this man. So, you know, there are many times between that abuse and the moment when I saw those pictures where I had reflected on the significance of what that experience had done and how it had damaged me. Um, But that moment was the most profound because i it wasn't just that I could reflect on things that had happened to me. It's, it's that I saw it change the way I looked at the world and myself, most importantly. And, I don't know. In
0: 1991, he started teaching law at the University of Chicago, and for the first time in his life, he got some help from a therapist.
1: He said, you need, a, you need real help. Um, therapy. And I said, well, what's that going to cost? He said, well, you know, it's going to be a couple hundred thousand dollars to pay for the therapy you need. And I said, I don't have that money. And he said, well, why doesn't the school pay for it? And I said, that's a good question. So I hired a lawyer and um, we sued the school and the school quickly settled. And all I wanted was the money for the therapy. And they wrote the check for the therapy. And I went. I uh, started getting therapy and I I was really proud of the way they dealt with it. Like, I was, you heard me, and I need help, and they just gave. wrote the check, um, where the insurance company wrote the check. But this way that they dealt with the question, which felt like a very healthy and direct way to deal with it, um, changed pretty dramatically.
0: In 2001, he got an email out of the blue from someone he didn't know. It said... Are you the Lawrence Lessig who went to the boy choir school? Support for Criminal comes from Astapro, who also provided us with free samples. This is my favorite time of year, even though I've had terrible allergies all my life. My mother says she always knew when I was up in the morning because she'd hear me sneeze and say, Phoebe's up. I think the most I've ever sneezed in a row is 48. It's like my nose is in control and I'm just along for the ride. AstroPro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. It starts working in just 30 minutes, so you can get on with your day and be out in the sun comfortably. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with AstroPro. Go to AstroProAllergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O-Allergy.com. Use it as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Support for Criminal comes from Quince. It's spring, and you might be in the mood to get rid of some clutter. A good place as any to start is your wardrobe. Having just a few high-quality, timeless pieces of clothing feels a lot better than a closet full of stuff you're not that thrilled about. You can get some of those well-made essentials from Quince. Quince is a brand that offers luxury clothing essentials at reasonable prices. They have a wide variety of items, like 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters, organic cotton sweaters, washable silk tops, and 14-karat gold jewelry. All of Quince's stuff is affordable. In fact, they're priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They're able to do that because they partner directly with top factories. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash criminal for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e slash criminal to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash criminal. The emails were from a man named John Hardwick, who'd been a student at the Boy Choir School before Lawrence Lessig, and who wanted to file a lawsuit.
1: And he had tried to get me involved in the case that he was bringing, and I was incredibly reluctant. And I told him, I, I, you know, it's not, my, it's not my issue, It's not my, and I've got my life, and I don't want to go back there, and please don't call me. And he literally would not stop. He was, uh, you know, calling. He said, well, can I send you a list of students, and you tell me which ones you think were abused? And I said, no, 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 no. You know, God forbid I would be in the middle of that fight and have to confront and think about that experience again and again and again and I just didn't want to do it and I felt like the insurance company in the school had behaved well towards me so I didn't it's almost kind of a weird loyalty you guys had dealt with me appropriately so I'm expect you're gonna deal with him appropriately and so it just wasn't my fight to get involved given that I had such hope about you know how it would resolve itself and obviously I was wrong about that
0: a couple of years later Lawrence Lessig was reading the New York Times and came across an article about John Hardwick's lawsuit. The headline read, Judge throws out lawsuits against boy choir school. The judge ruled that the school was insulated from any legal action because it was protected by something called the doctrine of charitable
1: immunity. I was like, this is outrageous. It's just so wrong. the insurance company is wrong. The court is wrong. Everything is wrong here. And so I contacted Hardwick, and I said, let me take the case. I'll take the case for free, and um, let's get this stupid decision reversed.
0: Will you describe a little bit more, just help me understand, the Charitable Immunity Act, what it, what it says?
1: So the Act basically immunizes charities for the negligence of uh, their employees, um, It's a completely stupid doctrine that was erected originally at a time when there wasn't really insurance available, so it was a way to make sure that, you know, if you slip and fall in front of the church, you can't sue the church and drive the church out of existence. But the important line there was negligence, you know, so it's one thing to be negligent. It's another thing to be reckless or intentional in the wrong that you are committing, Um, and our claim was, or John's claim was that the school you know was completely reckless about policing the behavior of um, its employees, not just Hansen. I mean, you know there are, there are others, many others I don't know how many, but I and I don't know any of this firsthand, but um, from people I trust, you know others in the institute who were there and attracted to the institution because it was just a place where you could abuse children. that's why they were there uh, and when the institution should be, you know, charged with knowing so clearly what's going on that, they, uh, that this should be considered reckless, at least, that they didn't take steps to address it. And so it wasn't negligence. It was something much worse than negligence. But the lower court had said, well, it's too hard to draw a line between negligence and recklessness and willfulness. And we think the intent of the legislature was basically to immunize all of that behavior, which made no sense it was completely unjust and just left these institutions free to, to continue to do their wrong. And, and, you know, by this stage, you know, I was a law professor. And what law professors realize is the great thing that tort law does is that it disciplines institutions to behave appropriately. So if an institution is liable, what that means is that, you know, insurance companies and boards of directors make sure that the right protections are in place to avoid this wrong going forward. So the reason to make sure that they're liable, schools are liable, is so that the insurance companies say, we're not going to sell you insurance unless you're taking steps to make sure that, you know, your children are not being abused. And that's all that this is about, making sure that there's a system to protect children, because you know that the pathology of Abusers will always try to find a way in. So you need these systematic institutional protections
0: when you agreed to take on the case to to work on the appeal, how many people in your life knew about your
1: own direct connection to this abuse?
0: Um, Was it just those two girlfriends still at that point in your therapist?
1: It could have been just those two. I don't think I had any other I don't think I had any reason to talk to anybody else about it. Um, but when I took on the case, I knew it was going to be public. and and so I had to do the hardest thing uh, for me, which was to talk to my parents about it what What was that conversation with your parents like? So it was uh, unfortunately easier than I had hoped it would be. <laughs> you know, i what I feared most is that they would would take it too personally, that they would feel like they had failed to protect me. Because in a sense they had, in a real sense they had. And I didn't want them to feel too guilty about that. But afterwards I realized I wanted them to feel guilty enough about that. Because I, you know, I I remember through that period always feeling like I was you know, an adult, you know, even though I was 12 or 13 or 14 or 15, I felt like I was smart enough to know and take care of myself and I didn't need anybody to be protecting me. It's certainly not my parents. And if they had tried to, I would have been outraged just like I was when my mother signaled she might have known something was going on. But, you know, 10 and 15 years later, uh, as I look back on it, I was like, was your job. This is what you were supposed to be worrying about and thinking about and and that you didn't was bad. And then when it came out that it didn't seem to hurt as much as I um, would have thought, that was also difficult. And so I didn't want to rub their noses in it. I didn't want them to make feel them, make them feel terrible about it. But in the end, it made me feel even more alone about the experience because I felt... And it was just for me. It wasn't for anybody else to feel the the burden.
0: I wonder if this case, that that first day in the courtroom, uh, if it felt different, if it was, were you more nervous? Or was the weight greater?
1: No, it was easier than any case I've ever done. There's no ambiguity in my head about what the law should be here, and there was no justification for the decision below. I was absolutely confident. And um, I remember after the Court of Appeals argument, the lawyer for the insurance company came up and said, I've never seen a better oral argument in my life. That was extraordinary. And I was both touched and astonished that there would be any doubt, because... <laughs> Of course, this was gonna be the most important thing I argued and I knew I had to do, I would do it well because I had to, I had to. Um, Finally, I had to do something good in the middle of this disaster that's, you know, one part of me, you know, will always feel guilty for even though, you know, the adult part of me says, you were a kid, but the kid part of me says, yeah, but it was me. I, just like all of those teachers, I could have said something. I could have known enough, should have known enough, should have had the courage enough.
0: I've read that there was a moment when the lawyer, when Greenblatt, sort of outed your personal stake in the case.
1: Yeah. What happened? Yeah, you know, it was almost, I experienced it as like fearing that it would seem that I was biased. And then I imagine, immediately thought, well, I was biased, but I'm an advocate. I'm not a judge. Um, it's my job to be on the side of what I'm arguing for. And... You know, fuck you. Um, I was abused. Why, what's, what, what's the wrong in that? Uh, except to the, by the person who did it. Um, but it's, you know, at that point, I kind of embraced the recognition that I'm not going to hide the fact or be able to hide the fact. People are going to put two and two together. And so that's when it was clear I needed to just come out with it and in a way that made it as comprehensive as it could be.
0: The court ruled in favor of John Hardwick and the school immediately
1: appealed the decision to the state Supreme Court. And when the Supreme Court ruled, the Supreme Court took like almost two years to decide. The Supreme Court of New Jersey took almost two years to decide. And when it decided, there was nothing reported on it at all. So nobody knew about it. And I didn't go around sort of telling everybody, you know, I sort of blogged about it. Um, But, you know, seven people read blogs. So I remember I was in a train, <laughs> and I got the news, and I, uh, I bought drinks for everybody in the cafe car on the train. And, you know, I said, I just want a case, and it's really important, and I'm not going to tell you why it's important. I'm just going to buy you a drink. And that was the sum total of the celebration were those happy people on the train, not sure why they were getting a free drink, but um, that was it. You know, one of the ways in which the experience of this abuse was so important to where I am right now is that it's from that moment in my life that I began to think about justice in the way that has, um, that is completely my obsession right now. And that's the distinction between thinking about the criminal and the people who enable the crime to happen. Those people who do nothing. When great harm is happening, as a, uh, not so much as opposed to, but in addition to those who are doing the great harm. And, and so in this case itself, what was important to me was not so much whether you could go out and arrest people like Donald Hansen, which of course they could have. They could have criminally prosecuted They could still criminally prosecute him. But it was making sure that those around the criminal felt the responsibility to do something too. Where is Hanson now? I don't know. Um, I've tried to find out. Not so much because I want to, you know, have him arrested as much as just to see where he is in his own head. But I know he fled and went into hiding because, you know, once it became clear with the extent of his crimes, the, um, New Jersey was pretty intent on prosecuting him criminally and he wanted to evade that.
0: This might sound odd, but why are you willing to talk about it?
1: Because I can. You know, I'm incredibly privileged. I have tenure. I um, have a wife and a family that love me. um, And I don't need anything else beyond those things. And I... But there are a lot of people out there who need much more. And they will only get it if um, the world comes to terms with its failure to protect those who need to be protected. And in my view, we will only do that when we learn to focus our anger in the right place, which means not just at the criminal, but at those who enable the criminal. You know, I remember when uh, when the Weinstein case was first first came out. I, as pathological as Weinstein is, and certainly he is, you know, scum. Uh, there's an endless list of people who let that happen, and those are the those are the, that's the responsibility we have to develop a sensibility to uh, sens- sensitivity. Uh, it's got to be a part of our life. And so I, you know, I'm in a place where I can afford to, whatever it might do to me, I can try to campaign for that. That's what I'm trying to do campaign for that. And that's what my work is about. That's what everything I do is about. Uh, and so I'm happy to talk about it when I can.
0: The American Boy Choir School filed for bankruptcy in 2015, and then, citing low enrollment, closed its doors for good this fall. Criminal is produced by Lauren Spohr, Nadia Wilson and me, audio mix by Rob Byers, Mathilde Urfelino is our intern, Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're a proud member of Radiotopia from PRX, a collection of the best podcasts around. Special thanks to AdCirc for providing their ad-serving platform to Radiotopia. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal.
1: Radiotopia. From PRX. Support for this show comes from Fundrise. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do.